I genuinely think we are at one of those watershed moments in technology history. We will in future divide the history of technology into basically pre-GPT and post-GPT eras. It's really much closer to alchemy than it is to science. When was it that it crept into your field of vision for the first time? Did someone drop GPT or Claude or Dali or Bard or one of the others into a conversation? Did someone ask a chatbot something during a Zoom call? Did your kid write an essay too quickly? Did you? It was late November 2022 when OpenAI released ChatGPT. By December, it had over 1 million users and by January, over 100 million the fastest growing consumer application we've ever seen. Now, of course, that wasn't the beginning of AI, but it was undoubtedly one of the most important single moments in its history. Even for the technical experts, the progress made by this new generation of models seemed stunning. And for the rest of us, well, I think the revolution was probably as much about access. Suddenly, we could all get our hands on these cutting edge models as well. The change was so great that people started talking about a pre-GPT age and a post-GPT age. And that brings us to the moment we're living in now. A moment which seems overflowing both with opportunity and mystery, I think. Amazing new powers at our fingertips and also scary new threats around the corner or already here. I'm Carl Miller, an author and researcher. In this series, I'm going to be using an idea that I think is particularly useful at times like this, power. It's a slippery idea and we use it to talk about everything from coercive power and force through to economic power and wealth and incentives, all the way through to powers over ideas and persuasion. And power can span all those different things. But it's also, however slippery, massively important. Because what power really is, is the ability to shape the world around us, including our own lives and the lives of others. And of course, power in the hands of others means the ability to shape our lives in turn. Questions of power matter most during moments of massive revolutionary change. Think of the discussions about who owns the means of production during the Industrial Revolution. Or think of those contemplating the authority of the modern state in the 19th century as those very states emerged. Or think of scholars looking at hidden power of language and shaping our world during the 1960s. Today, maybe, probably, could be, is one of those moments of massive revolutionary change. And ironically, I think, in a world awash with data and models and algorithms, how the world is actually shaped is becoming more mysterious, becoming more unknowable, becoming more unknown. And following the trail of power might help us to track those very influences down. Welcome to Power Trip. This is episode one, AI and the technology. To start things off, I think we need to go back to the beginning, the conception of artificial intelligence and that murky question of definitions. What actually is AI? But enough from me for the moment. I'm going to hand you over to someone who's been thinking about this for decades. Hi, my name is Mike Woodridge. I'm a professor of artificial intelligence at Oxford University. I'm director of foundational AI research at the Alan Turing Institute in London. And I'm the author of The Road to Conscious Machines, a popular science introduction. So how would Mike Woodridge define artificial intelligence? 
Very difficult question. You're starting off with the hard ones, I have to say. The problem is nobody owns this. And actually, everybody has their own ideas about what AI is and what AI should be. And who's to say whose version of AI is the right one? The simplest, most sort of popular perception of what AI is comes to us through the movies. A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants, manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. One day the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons in the plains of Africa. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools. It comes to us through movies and novels and video games and books. And that version of AI is the idea that what AI is all about is about building machines that are ultimately as fully competent as human beings. So if we succeed with that version of AI, then we'll have machines that can do everything that a human being can do, potentially more, and maybe even have the same status as fully realized, autonomous, sentient individuals that human beings have. And we've, we all recognize that version of AI from movies and video games and the like. And that's sometimes called general AI. More technically, it's sometimes I'm the extreme version of it. The idea that we build conscious machines is called strong AI within the AI community. I have to tell you, that is not where the center of gravity is in the AI community. The center of gravity, what most people are concerned about, is a bit more mundane sounding. It doesn't sound quite as Hollywood glitzy. But nevertheless, it's incredibly important because we've seen a lot of progress on it over the last few years. And that's the idea simply of getting machines to do things which currently require brains, require brains and nervous systems and bodies. And so the way it typically works is you identify some particular task, like translating from French to English, and you focus just on, and that, that's a classic example of a task which requires human intelligence at the moment. Uh, and you focus on just getting a machine that can do that one particular task. And the fact that it can do that doesn't mean that it can do anything else whatsoever. It can't drive a car or cook an omelette. But equally well, you might focus on trying to build AI. And lots of people are focused on trying to do this, building AI systems that can drive cars, right? That's another classic example of an AI challenge. But really compared to the full range of human capabilities, that's actually a very, very narrow problem. I'm sure someone in Silicon Valley could build an omelette cooking robot if they saw any great reward in it. But we're going to come back to that thorny question later. So here's an important early distinction between narrow and wide problems. We've seen AI already be very good at specific narrow tasks. If you remember AlphaGo, we see machines that can outstrip humans at games like Go or Chess already. But that is a great deal different, I think, from a wider slice of more general capabilities, certainly one able to reach into the physical world with some sort of agency of its own. But before we look forward, let's cast ourselves back to the start of the AI story, how this all began. Well, so in my book, I, I describe it as the history of AI through failed ideas, and, and that's why it's such a long book. There is a long history of failed ideas in AI. So... The first thing to say is the general idea of AI, which is about bringing inanimate things to life in some sense, is an absolutely an ancient one. So the ancient Greeks had the myth of Hephaestus, blacksmith to the gods, who brought metal creatures to life to serve the gods on Olympus. 
And then in the Middle Ages, there was the myth of the golem in medieval Prague, a creature fashioned from mud and brought to life. Uh, and then more recently, there's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's exactly the same idea. Go through to the 1920s and Fritz Lang's Metropolis film, which set the stereotype for so much of, of subsequent science fiction. So the idea is a very old one, but really it, we date AI really from about around about 1950. And the first person who really made a meaningful scientific contribution to the advancement of AI was Alan Turing, you know, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. For all that we know about Alan Turing, we still, I think most people don't appreciate quite how much he achieved in his lifetime. An extraordinary individual. So you've got to remember just after the Second World War, the first digital computers, that is the first modern style computers were beginning to appear. And people were getting very excited about these electronic brains as they described them. And Turing got fed up with people arguing about whether such an electronic brain could really think or understand. And what he defined was what we now know as the Turing test. And the Turing test says, roughly speaking, what you do if you want to under try to get to the bottom of whether a machine understands something, you basically connect it via a, a computer screen and a keyboard to a human judge. And the human doesn't know whether what's on the other end is a machine or a, or a computer. And the, the judge can just type anything, ask any question they like, and the thing on the other end has to respond. And if after a reasonable amount of time, um, the judge can't tell whether it's a, a computer or a human, then Turing said, just accept that it's got human-like intelligence. According to Mike, this was the starting point for artificial intelligence. And moving into the late 50s and then the 60s, the next generation bounded forward. Famous computer scientists like John McCarthy and Marvin Minsky started ambitious programs and labs to push and test the boundaries of what computers were capable of learning and of solving. I've actually been to one of the first places where this happened. It's now a dusty room filled with a giant computerized model railway in MIT in Boston. This was actually one of the birthplaces of the hackers. And right from the beginning, right from when computers were wheeled out into the corridor outside that room, this talented group of people peered into those computers and wondered whether one day something might peer back at them. These rapid early advancements had people believing that the finish line for artificial intelligence was in fact in sight. 20 years later, progress has been very, very slow and disillusionment sets in and we see what's called the AI winter in the middle of the 1970s. And what the AI winter was, was national funding agencies in the US and the UK basically saying, guys, You've had your fun, and I have to say they were guys by and large at that point. Guys, you had your fun, you're not delivering the goods, and we're going to cut funding. And so there was massive funding cuts in AI at that time. And so that was the first AI winter. So then a new idea comes around, and the idea is that the problem of intelligence is a problem of knowledge. That is, all we have to do to build a machine that can, say, translate from French to English is give that machine the knowledge that a human expert translator could do. So how do we find that knowledge? We go and talk to a human expert translator and find out how they do it. And we give the machine that knowledge. So this delivers some quick successes. Again, everybody gets very excited and they think it's a quick dash to the finish line again and the AI is all going to be done and dusted. But it turns out for a huge range of problems, this approach just doesn't work at all. And AI, again, not quite in the same way, but there's a bit of a backlash again. You know, it still hasn't worked. All these inflated expectations still haven't delivered. Then this century, what starts to work is the idea of neural networks. Neural networks, a very old idea, the idea that we can simulate in computer software 
the kind of structures that we see in uh, brains, in animal brains, in our brains and other animals and nervous systems, which are capable of learning and are the producers of intelligence in animals, um, that we can simulate those in software. And it's an old idea. People had had this idea decades and decades ago, but it had never worked at scale. And then this century, it starts to work. Around about 2005, people start to notice that actually something is interesting here. We're getting systems now that can do interesting things. And then the floodgates open in 2012 with a system called AlexNet. And it just shows for the first time a huge step change in improvement. So why did the floodgates open? Three reasons. Basically, there were some advances in the technology, but really quite modest advances. But just as important, to make this work, you needed lots and lots of data and you needed lots and lots of computer power. Okay, And those things became available in abundance this century, cheap data and cheap computer power. And to build um, these neural network systems, that's what you need, lots and lots of data and lots of computer power. And then things go crazy. And I thought you know, by 2014, it, it was obvious that you know, progress had, had speeded up and we were seeing real advances. But then uh, just as we thought things get good and couldn't get any crazier, ChatGPT arrives on the scene. In November 2022, ChatGPT is released. And for the first time, a general purpose mass market AI tool becomes available. And the rest, you know, your readers will know, the rest is history. I remember my first interaction with this sort of technology, Eliza. Now, my dad is a psychologist, and it was decades ago when he first showed it to me. Eliza was a sort of primitive therapy chatbot. It would ask you questions about how you were feeling and why you were feeling certain ways. Now, it was elementary. You could quickly work out it wasn't real. But it was the first time, I can remember anyway, that a computer was talking back to me in that way, trying to be human in some way, even if it broadly failed. Does it understand what it's doing in the sense that we do? It's easy to leap to false conclusions, as Professor Weizenbaum discovered when he created ELISA. ELISA is a computer program that anyone can converse with via the keyboard and it'll reply on the screen. We've added human speech to make the conversation more clear. Men are all alike. In what way? They're always bugging us about something or other. Can you think of a specific example? Well, my boyfriend made me come here. Your boyfriend made you come here? He says um, I'm depressed much of the time. I'm sorry to hear that you're depressed. It's true. I am unhappy. Do you think coming here will help you not to be unhappy? The computer's replies seem very understanding, but this program is merely triggered by certain phrases to come out with stock responses. Nevertheless, Weizenbaum's secretary fell under the spell of the machine. And I asked her to my office and sat her down at the keyboard and, and she began to type. And of course, I looked over her shoulder to make sure that everything was operating properly. After two or three interchanges with, uh, with the machine, she turned to me and she said, would you mind leaving the room, please? And yet she knew, as Weizenbaum did, that Eliza didn't understand a single word that was being typed into it. Whether primitive or sophisticated, ELISA or ChatGPT, these models were actually writing back to me. They are creating something. They're half of a conversation. This sort of AI we call generative AI. It creates something, it generates something. So let's get a slightly deeper understanding of what that is, of what generative AI is. 
My name's Henry Ida, and since 2017, I've been doing what I guess you could call deepfake or generative AI cartography. That is, I've been investigating, mapping, exploring the impact and emerging capabilities of these forms of artificial intelligence that can generate highly realistic but fake audios, images, and videos. What is generative AI? I guess I want to just help potentially your listeners understand the distinctions and maybe the similarities between certain terms that are being used here, because there are lots of terms being thrown around. Generative AI is obviously the new kind of buzzword that a lot of people are hearing. But then there's also this term deepfakes, which a lot of people may have heard previously before they heard the phrase generative AI. And what we're really talking about when we're talking about generative AI and deepfakes is, is on one level fundamentally very much the same thing. We are talking about the use of algorithms which have been trained typically on authentic data. So that might be images, authentic human written text, photos, voice audio. And via training through certain neural networks, these algorithms learn how to replicate essentially what I would call a, a simulacrum, essentially a copy, a realistic copy of the authentic. And that means that we're basically using AI to generate highly realistic synthetic media that looks like or could be authentic media to the eyes, ears of the person who's, who's consuming it. Now, when we're talking about deepfakes, this term emerged in 2017 in the context of non-consensual pornography. So it immediately had this quite negative connotation. Some people still use the term deepfake to refer only to malicious use cases of essentially generative technologies, voice cloning for fraud, for example, or again, maybe using ChatGPT to generate disinformation to spread online. But that's not a certain definition. It's not set in stone. This isn't an academic term. So it really does still mean different things to different people. But when it comes to generative AI, that's a much more kind of almost solid term in terms of how it's referred. And that's typically talking about the use of algorithms purely to just essentially create via, as I said, authentic data, things that look very authentic, but in fact are synthetic. And that's across all of these different forms of media, whether that's images, audio, video, text, even, you know, extended reality metaverse style things, 3D assets for gaming and so on as well. These are all things that fall under the realm of generative AI. So the term artificial intelligence might be somewhat confusing right now, and I don't think there's any getting around that, as it really implies that machines could develop a mind, another confusing term, of their own, which is something we'll address later on in the series. When they are generating these outputs, there's no conscious reflection going on there, right? There isn't understanding perhaps in the same way that we think about it in terms of a human processing things consciously, right? What we're really talking about is models that effectively act as, as sophisticated uh, autocomplete. These models are from a probabilistic background, i.e. they're trying to figure out what is the most probable next word to come in a sequence. And based on the huge amount of data they've been trained on, most of the web, they've got a pretty good idea of how sentence structures work and, and how prompts should be followed by sentences, by words. But as we've seen in many contexts, it gets it wrong quite often, even if it sounds confidently right. It does what people are calling hallucinations. 
which I find a little bit problematic as a term because it's a bit anthropomorphizing, which I don't quite like. But we're really talking about just getting, getting things wrong, making mistakes. And some of these mistakes are really kind of funny because they're so obvious. My favorite one, for example, is if you asked ChatGPT a few months ago, what weighs more, a pound of steel or a pound of feathers? You would get an intricate two-page answer about why the steel weighs more, right? And so there are still these elements of like common sense understanding and reasoning that these models really don't really don't have because they're not optimized or they're not they don't really have reasoning abilities or rational abilities really. They just have this ability to probabilistically kind of come to a conclusion about what is going to come next in a sequence of, of words. So I think there's still some work to go. These models are by no means perfect at the moment, these generative AI models, and that goes for images and video and audio as well. But they are certainly moving at a pace that we have not seen in the history of AI and the, the, the rate of change is unprecedented. Okay, so now we've got a handle on what this technology is and in the very broader sense, how it works. I want to know about its impacts, how impactful it's going to be for our world. And questions of impacts have to do with lots of things. It's got to do with the distribution of power, where it sits. It's got to do with the use of power, who's using it to do what. And maybe we'll even get a sense of the nature of power, what being in control, what being able to shape the world even means anymore. All of that coming up after the break. I can vividly remember seeing the World Wide Web for the first time in 1993. And it was obvious to me then that this was going to be big, although I didn't realize how big it was going to be. But the World Wide Web revolution took years. It took from 1991 until around about 1997, 1998 for it really to take off. So instead of taking five or six years to take off, this technology has taken off in months. So I genuinely think we are at one of those watershed moments in technology history. We are right now seeing a transformational period in technological history where we will in future divide the history of technology into basically pre-GPT and post-GPT eras. In the same way, there was the pre-World Wide Web and the post-World Wide Web era. Exactly the same thing is going on now. And looking around at the big tech companies, if we look at Google, for example, who've enjoyed casual dominance of the search market for, for pretty much a quarter of a century. I mean, it feels like they haven't had to try. They've just dominated. We don't even call it search. We call it Googling, right? And for the first time in 25 years, Google seemed to be rattled. And why are they rattled? Because they did not expect this technology to be so successful and so rapidly adopted. And as far as one can tell, what they're frantically doing is trying to insert this technology, large language model technology, uh, the GPT type technology into their products and services as quickly as possible. And Microsoft, who are OpenAI's backer, now feel they've got an advantage in the marketplace with, uh, with ChatGPT and, and GPT-4 and the like. And they are frantically trying to exploit that advantage. Of course they are. That's, you know, why wouldn't they try and do that? So it's really extraordinary times in the science, AI science and technology world. And the future of the world's biggest companies, trillion dollar companies, is hinging on what happens with this technology and a breakthrough that one company can make in this space, which 
you know, is entirely plausible thinking up a new product or service or way that this technology can be used or an advance on it could deliver a decisive advantage in the market. And I say it's a, a transformational moment for those reasons. Mike mentioned a few big names there, Google and Microsoft and OpenAI. And there's one place that I think has become synonymous with the disruptive technology that those sorts of companies build, a place I'm sure you've heard of, that smallish flat-bottomed basin in California, the world's hub of technology innovation, Silicon Valley. That region of Northern California is responsible for such a huge proportion of the technology which has revolutionized the way we live in recent decades, from the microcomputer all the way through to social media and now AI. What is it that makes this area so innovative, so powerful? My name is Judy Wiseman, and I'm an emeritus professor in sociology at the London School of Economics. And I also co-lead a project at the Alan Turing Institute on women in data science and artificial intelligence. We have to push back on their story that they're all self-made men and that they, you know, invented these things from nowhere, not that actually there was a huge military base in California which was subsidized by the state. We've always known that as technology people have always said, actually, this stuff has got its military R&D. And I think, again, one of the things progressive people are raising everywhere is why is so much R&D money going to the military and not directly to social purposes? A lot of the technology we get is secondhand. It's military technology that then finds commercial use. And you can point to loads of stuff, microwaves, everything, you know. And why are we just directing it to social good in the first place? You know, and that's a political issue. So there's a common misconception that can float around about Silicon Valley, that it's all about free markets and venture capitalists. But it's also about massive public funding and the military. Innovation couldn't have happened without all of that, too. The growth of the valley actually dates back to the 40s and the 50s when it was used as a naval air station and then went on to receive lucrative government contracts to develop military technology, including the Polaris missile. So to me, Silicon Valley has always represented a massive concentration of power. It's unmistakable. It's unmissable. Power flowing into a single place, into a small number of those trillion dollar companies, into a small number of the founders of those companies. But back to the present day, what does it mean for this much power power which determines the future of pretty much everyone on the planet to be so centralised in one area and amongst a very few number of very powerful people. Why on earth do we ha all use a search engine that's basically American and Californian based? Maybe we would have, for all of this time, searched things and got slightly different answers and slightly different knowledge of, you know, just like when you read a newspaper. Um, in Britain, you get so little European news compared to American news. I mean, it's all the subtle things like that that I think would make a kind of very big difference, actually. It is one problem that we've got is that so much of this technology is behind closed doors, and that makes it very hard to um, evaluate. I have a very practical concern, which is that UK universities and, and public bodies don't have the resources to build this technology, don't have the resources to experiment with it can only use it via restricted APIs behind closed doors. And that bothers me. So yeah, I think that given the potential power of this technology, there needs to be more public scrutiny of it. And that exactly how that's going to work, I don't know, but those debates are very live right now. 
Both Mike and Judy are alluding to maybe the most obvious form of power in our journey, the kind of consequences of centralized power in those companies, which doesn't so much trickle as gush down from them and into all of our lives. And this is something we're going to have to come back to throughout the rest of this series when we speak to people whose lives are touched by the technological and commercial choices those companies have made. We've almost come to the end of this episode, but before we go, I need to address those voices that we heard at the beginning. What makes this question of power shift so pressing, and the reason that we're going on this journey in this series, is that our horizons, how far we can actually see ahead of us, well, they feel like they're drawing in. It feels like we can see less far ahead, like the future is becoming more unknowable, more mysterious. And that starts with the technology itself, and how well that is actually understood. We have all sorts of sophisticated mathematics and experimental tools, but we don't really understand how to, for example, systematically evaluate a large language model and figure out what it can actually reliably do. And one of the frustrations is uh, with these models is you try them on 10 problems, 10 problems of the same kind, and you think, okay, I've now discovered the pattern that this thing obeys. You know, I now know what it's going to do when they face a problem like this. And then you give it a very similar problem and it falls on its face. And why does it do that? And we don't really understand. We are frantically trying to find our way with this technology. We don't yet have the, the methodologies, the experimental toolkits to be able to, to understand it. I mean, another way of thinking about it is when, you know, the discovery of radiation and x-rays and so on, and people just didn't know how this stuff worked. They could see that you put this substance in front of a, a photographic plate and it would fog the plate, but what exactly is going on there, people didn't know. So it feels like we're at a similar place. My name is Karen Leahy. I'm the CEO of Conjecture. As you get to larger and larger scales, you see these emergent phenomena, which are really quite spooky and really quite strange. You see training dynamics and capabilities and like weird changes to it that just like do not happen until you reach a certain level. We have phenomena on like our smaller model, it's still quite large, where it trains super fine, no problem. We do the same thing on a larger model and suddenly it develops these like bizarre spikes and movements in its performance and whatever. And we just have no idea what it's doing yet. We graph a lot of the internals of our models. We like look at the internals of our models of like how their activations change or standard definition of words and whatever. And it's just like looking into the mind of an alien. You're like, what am I even looking at? Like, why is there a line there? What? Why is this value 10 trillion times larger than all the other ones? Who put that there? We have no idea. It's like we're medieval scientists poking under a microscope at some kind of weird eel we found. It's It's wild. Even seeing cause and effect is honestly really not there. It's more like alchemy. It's like we're not even at the chemistry phase yet. We're not even at the medicine phase yet. We're really still in the alchemy phase. There's like some things like, you know, we know a little bit. It's not zero. Alchemists did know some things about chemistry. Alchemists did discover a lot of actual relevant work, but it's really much closer to alchemy than it is to science. Alchemy and x-ray machines, it paints an interesting, if not unknown, vision of the future. But how are we going to get there? While the power remains in the hands of a certain few, and the extent of it seems to be, well, I mean, murky at best, the effects of AI are rippling across the world as we speak, forging the path towards this alchemic future, as Connor would put it. 
In order for us to see the bigger picture of AI's power shift, we need to address all the different systems of our own lives that it will touch, if not shake. And that begins in episode two, next time, when we look at work and the economy. There's one question I think we're all worrying about. Are we about to get automated? Who is going to win and who is going to lose in the advancements from AI? That's coming up in episode two of Power Trip, AI and the Workforce. Thanks for listening to this episode of Power Trip. You can access all episodes of the series now by subscribing to Intelligence Squared by Apple Podcasts or on the link in the show notes. Please do follow and rate the series wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Carl Miller. This series was produced and edited by Catherine Hughes.